You're listening to It's All Dead, a podcast about the music we love and why we love it. I'm Kyle Hawk. Welcome to It's All Dead. I'm your host, Kyle Hawk, editor-in-chief at itsalldead.com. Thank you for joining us on the pod once again. So glad you're here. Um, very excited to share a, uh, a fun crossover episode with you today. I'll get into that here in just a moment. Uh, in the meantime, if you haven't recently, uh, check us out at itsalldead.com. And of course, subscribe and rate our podcast. Pull up your favorite podcast app. Uh, search for It's All Dead and uh, stay up to date with uh, all of the cool, fun episodes we put out. Uh, I've got another best of uh, podcast coming up later this spring where we break down the discography of one of our favorite bands. Excited to share that one with you. Also got a couple cool interviews coming your way. So be sure to subscribe to It's All Dead and uh, check out It's All Dead dot com. would also love a follow on Twitter, Facebook or uh, wherever you want to tag along. But yeah, that's the deal. Love to stay in touch with everybody that's uh, listening and following along. And to that point, I'm excited to share uh, something with you today that I'm hopeful that our It's All Dead audience will enjoy. Um, a lot of you, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you're familiar with our good friend Brock Benefield, who joins us on the It's All Dead podcast from time to time. He's also written some some cool reviews for us over the years and just generally been a, a friend of the site and the podcast. Well, uh, he and I have actually launched a completely different podcast than this. It's called Decade Rewind. And it's a podcast where we reflect on news, pop culture, movies, music, just any general cultural event that happened 10 years ago and try to put it into perspective of what it means now, what's changed over the past 10 years, how it impacted of our lives, um, how it impacted culture at large, and just generally um, how we think about it 10 years later. It's a really fun podcast. We like to uh, joke around with it, but we also like to kind of dig in uh, to kind of the meat of it. Um, and it's kind of a just a fun new project, and we'd love for you to check it out. But in doing so, I want to share with you today uh, the latest episode of Decade Rewind on this podcast. And the reason I'm doing that is because each year, uh, at the start of the year, Brock and I do a podcast for It's All Dead where we hand out the hip-hop title belt, as we call it. Just generally talk about uh, which rapper or hip-hop artist had the biggest impact on culture and the art form in the past year. And so for Decade Rewind, Brock and I decided to look back on the year 2009 and figure out who took the hip-hop title belt for that year. Uh, we actually had a pretty healthy disagreement on it, and I think the conversation was really fun. It was a really fascinating and weird year in hip-hop. A lot of things were changing, and it, so it was fun to kind of dig into some of the new artists uh, that were coming out at that time and how just the sound and style of hip-hop was changing. Um, so yeah, if you enjoy our uh, podcasts, I, I think you're really going to enjoy this as well. You can, of course, subscribe to Decade Rewind on your favorite podcast app. Um, leave it a review. Share it with your friends. Uh, you can follow on Twitter at uh, Decade Rewind and uh, send us an email. And let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about at DecadeRewindPod at gmail. So without further ado, I'm going to let you check out uh, the latest episode of Decade Rewind, who won the hip-hop title belt in the year 2009. Hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Decade Rewind podcast, where we look back 10 years on the biggest pop culture, news, and sports events that matter to us most. I'm your co-host, Brock Benefil, alongside with me is the editor-in-chief of It'sAllDead.com, 
welcome my co-host Kyle Hawk. Kyle, how are you doing today? Hey, I am doing great. Uh, winter will never end, but never. I'm here, we're here, and uh, I'm excited to uh, talk about uh, rap music. Yes. As we've done, speaking of it's all dead.com, uh-huh. as we've done, what, the last three years? At least, yeah. We've given out the hip-hop title belts. And so what we figured we'd do today was look back 10 years and see who earned the title belt for 2009 since we did not have a podcast in 2009. Yeah. At least I didn't have a podcast. Did you have a podcast in 2009? In 2009? No, I was... On some podcasts, but I didn't have nice. my own. Now, so is this like, is this, would you call this a crossover episode? A, is this a spinoff? I don't know what the right term for this is, but it's kind of cool. This is an Alan Iverson episode. Yeah. This is the crossover. <laughs> the crossover. Kyle, did you know that one time Bruce Hornsby, uh, the adult contemporary artist Bruce Hornsby once beat Alan Iverson in one-on-one basketball? Wow. That's... This is- Dropping knowledge already. Something Damn. I learned this week, and I've Incredible. and I fact checked it. It's, it's pretty remarkable. All right. Well, I will take your word for it. Um, at least we'll always have uh, Alan Iverson stepping over Tyron Lue in the 2001 yes. finals. Yes. It's too bad Decade Rewind wasn't around 2011. I know. We talked about that. I know. Oh man, Bruce Hornsby. I mean, speaking of rap music, Bruce Hornsby. <laughs> so Kyle, let's set the stage for 2009 rap music. In 2007, hip-hop was dominated by the high-profile battle between Kanye West and 50 Cent, over which artist's new album release would garner more sales. Because, Kyle, in 2007, we still kind of cared about album sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so the timing of Kanye and 50 Cent's careers, they certainly made them artists of the same hip-hop class, but their distinctly different styles and sounds signaled two divergent paths in the genre. While 50 and his G-Unit label mates felt like a natural heir apparent to early, earlier successes of label crews at the turn of the century, like Rough Riders, Cash Money, No Limit, later Bad Boy, and yes, even Rockefeller Records, which gave birth to Kanye's career, his good music crew was something fresher. Not only had he collected some of the most exciting new hip-hop artists to appear on his albums— he aggregated or appropriated, depending on the level of credit you're willing to afford Kanye, some of the best but disparate sounds in alternative hip-hop and what was loosely defined as backpack rap. Kanye and 50 faced off Kyle and, unsurprisingly, Ye won in a knockout. Attempts to wrestle the genre back to the dominant sound of the prior decade felt like as good of a bet in late 2007 as a subprime mortgage. With that, Kanye (laughs) took the 2007 title belt. Flash forward to 2008, Kanye releases 808s and Heartbreak, which I know is an album that you think is terrible, uh, but it's one, <laughs> it's one of his most interesting works today, and Kyle, it dramatically influences the music of 2009. But according to me, he was not the title belt holder for 2008 because after a slew of successful mid-aughts mixtapes, it was Lil Wayne Kyle that used his unique combination of prolific recent output and a decade is one of the stars of hip-hop's most prominent labels to launch his career into a different stratosphere. As we've discussed before, the Carter Three was one of the biggest albums of our entire lives. Lil Wayne not only took the 2008 title belt, in my opinion, he also ensured his legacy as a first belt Hall of Famer. Which brings us to today's discussion, 2009, which, well, felt much more like a hangover from the previous two years and the two artists that dominated those years, Kanye and Lil Wayne, certainly made their presence known in 2009, Kyle. But the the last year of the 21st century's open opening decade 
featured albums by neither of them. Kyle, like me, did it seem to you at the time 2009 came around that we were primarily just waiting for music for Lil Wayne or Kanye? Yeah, that's definitely how it felt. And even looking back now, it's even more stark. And I remember when we were kind of doing some planning or first thinking about doing a, a hip-hop title belt for a podcast for 09, one of the first things I said to you was like, looking back, it's amazing how much like the mid to late 2000s were defined by whether or not Kanye released an album. Right. Like it's, it's fascinating. Now, that being said, he certainly has his presence felt throughout 2009, and we'll, we'll talk about that as well. 2009 is just such a weird year in hip hop, and I, I, it might be the weakest year that hip hop has had, uh, in recent memory, but the reason for that is because I think there was just a tectonic shift that was happening yeah. in the genre, and we're gonna get into all that, but it's, it's fascinating for me, and I, so we haven't really talked about like the hip hop title belt, like what we mean when we're giving this out. We're not when you know we do these podcasts in the past. We're not giving out like the the best rapper necessarily, or the person that had the best verse or the best song. It's like a cultural relevancy thing. Like who meant the most in hip hop? Who had the biggest impact over the course of the year? Two thousand nine. There is not a clear number one in my mind. You may feel differently, um, and I, I feel like I've got a an interesting take for this, and I know we'll get into that. But um, I, I, what are your thoughts on what, when you think back to two thousand nine? And we were both very much into hip hop then, and are still now. But like, what what were your thoughts in oh nine? Well, two thousand seven, two thousand eight. Those are like hot summers, right? Those oh, are sure. artists. Those are artists at the peak of his career. 2009 is like spring. Like it is, it is just all of these careers just starting to sprout or, you know, some, some less than epic releases by people that have been for around for a long time. Yeah. But as, yeah, as you mentioned, it is a tectonic shift. And I was just thinking because, I mean, Kanye and Little, and Little Wayne are, are just present because Kanye is shepherding along Kid Cudi's career. Little Wayne is debuting Young Money. Now, mm-hmm. Little Wayne puts out a mixtape, but it's nothing to the scale of the Carter Three. Yeah, and it's really all about this new generation of artists that are going to be backing Little Wayne. Yeah, you know, we you talked about '07, you know, with Kanye and Fifty Cent, and that kind of put a a, a nail in the coffin of gangster rap and ushered in what was a very short lived sort of celebratory hip hop era. When you think about graduation and then uh, uh, the Carter Three, and it, it was it was a thing that was kind of like opening the floodgates of what mainstream like pop rap was going to be, but we didn't see coming what Kanye did with 808s and Heartbreak that kind of shifted everything in terms of just like core hip hop yeah. down that direction starting in 2009. Well, and I think you can see this evolution. In Little Wayne's career alone, mm-hmm. if you think about the guy that released "The Block Is Hot" yeah. versus the guy that's making Lollipop, yeah, that's clearly someone who understands where the genre is going. Mm-hmm. Kanye may have defined it more and have may have been more influential in 2009, but man, Little Wayne was 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 astute when it came to following the uh, the tea leaves. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and he was great at it too, right? I mean, nobody did that better than he did in 08. Um, and it's fascinating the way that I think a lot of, um, indie hip hop, but not just indie, cause it was Jay-Z too. I mean, there, there was this kind of backlash against where I guess there was a perceived 
uh, view of where the genre was headed in terms of autotune yeah. specifically. And right. that's a whole conversation. I mean, we could literally just do this podcast about, I know. about that. Because 09 was literally a discussion about autotune and music. Right. That seems like... It seems like the Metazoic era now to think about how long ago it feels like we actually cared or wanted to talk about that just because it's so ingrained in, in popular music now. But but it felt like in 2009, we have a decision to make. Either our favorite artists, like Kanye West, like Lil Wayne, are just going to sound like robots, or we are going to choose to go with Jay-Z, who puts out Death of Autotune, which ironically is produced by Kanye West. Yeah. We're going to go in that direction and realize that we have to make this authentic connection to people's real voices. Right. And there's no in-between. It just seemed so black and white at the time. Yeah. Like it was either auto-tune or no auto-tune. And to, looking back 10 years later, that's kind of hilarious. Yeah. But it just – we were so uh, – auto-tune – dominated the sound of rap in 2009 in a way that was you could argue was egregious yeah so i'll give you insight into me in 2009 i was definitely on the anti-auto-tune side of the conversation and you know i i grew up listening to hip-hop and uh very early on fell in love with sort of underground indie rap music and so much of that subgenre is driven by you know just kind of the the original elements of what hip-hop music was, digging through crates, like, just rapping. Like, yeah. that that genre was really born out of, you know, people having a voice, right? And so when the voice is taken and manipulated, there's something uh, deep about that. And I think it felt really deep at the time in terms of, like, this is like an existential conversation for hip hop to have, right? And Jay Z was kind of leading the charge from a mainstream standpoint against that. Although underground hip hop had a huge year in 2009, and we'll talk about some of that too. But um, you've got Brother Ali, Elon Grouch, POS, Lupe Fiasco to a, a different degree. He'd kind of become a little bit more mainstream at that time. But there was a big push to like get back to the roots of hip hop in 09. But when we think of 09 now, it's almost like, oh, yeah, Jay-Z wrote The Death of Auditor. That's interesting. Because <laughs> right. what 2009 is remembered for is not for that side of the conversation. And I just wonder, given hip-hop's history, if so much of the anxiety around Auditune was this idea that artists and their creativity is being driven by the wants of a label or mm-hmm. the wants of a corporation. And we are almost creating a creative skill into a commodity by dehumanizing the voice. Yeah, definitely. And if you looked at the music that T-Pain was putting out at the time, who was the chief offender when it came to auto-tune, it did sound like we are creating this weird type of music that devalues the artists. And yep. so you think, again, you think about that 10 years, uh, 10 years later, it seems so silly. Mm-hmm. But at the time, it made so much sense because of the way Autotune was being deployed. Yeah, that's that's the perfect way to put it. And, you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about this during this podcast. But if you, if you want to talk about people that made money and were everywhere in 2009, you're talking about Black Eyed Peas. You're talking about yeah. Flo Rida. You're talking about artists who had fully gone in that direction and in some people's eyes had kind of bastardized an art form, right? But that was the sound of 2009 just in mass, right? Um, it, so it's, it's fascinating that the conversation about hip hop was like 
that stuff like isn't even a part of this conversation. You know what I mean? It's just, it's really interesting to think about like how hard these two roads kind of diverged from each other. Yeah. So you're, you're saying Flo Rider doesn't win the title belt for you. Uh, you know, it was tough, but I, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to go with 303 for the hip-hop time. Do you even know who 303 is? No, I, I don't like know who that is. Yeah, it's like these two white guys from Denver, Colorado, who are making really weird, yeah. like, pop rap music. In That's fantastic. Um, I think 2009 was the year that I realized Flo Rida was actually Florida. Uh-huh. That's yeah. what it stood for. Man, that, that that escaped me for years. Dude, everybody had that moment. Like, we can all remember that moment in our lives where we put the pieces together. And, you know, it's like in the basement, putting the strings right, right. on the like, thumbtacks. Like the wire. Wait a minute. <laughs> this guy's from a state that we know. <laughs> but yeah, who and who was on Flo Rida's biggest song that year? Kesha, who was, was one like, of the I don't big, know. <laughs> and she was one of the the biggest early adopters of like straight up pop music of like leaning hard into auto tune, yeah. right? So I mean, it's it was really it, there was so much stuff intertwined with all of that at the time. Well, and I I feel like any any because just like you, I was, I was anti-autotune. And I think the reason was not only were artists like T-Pain just sounding like robots, and I think most famously that, that song that he did with Jamie Foxx, where their two voices are almost indistinguishable, mm-hmm. and they are very they have two very distinct voices. Right. Um, but artists that I love, like Lil Wayne and Kanye, it sounded like I would never hear their, dis- their distinct vocals that I love. That, that was actually just going to be gone and erased. And that was that was what rap music was going to be. You compare that to now, like someone like Amigos or Future, mm-hmm. and they've done it in a way that feels so. I mean, damn near organic. Yep. And we didn't have a prior relationship to those artists that 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 made them sound different, right? So just, for sure, we, they came up with that sound. Yeah, and you mentioned a couple artists there, and Amigos and Future, who's voices are literally defined by that yeah. sound like you, you we don't even think about it but i want to go back to something you said a moment ago we both loved the carter three when it came out Love how it. did you reconcile that because i know i remember having a lot of internal conversations with myself of like if i'm going to be like the anti-autotune and hip-hop guy how can i enjoy the carter three so much you know what i mean it, yeah there was there was a part of me that was trying to find a way to like figure that out, you know, and, and, and honestly, it's like, it was going to work for different artists, right? Like Lil Wayne re, I mean, just reimagined who he was as an artist through autotune. Jay-Z was never going to be able to do that. Right. So it's almost like it wasn't like an all or nothing thing. It was kind of like coming to that place where you realize that it did have a place in music. Um, and, and that it was going to be different from artist to artist, I guess. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't really remember struggling as, as much with the, the Carter three, just cause I think that album was so remarkable. I think I honestly struggled more with it on 808s and Heartbreak. Sure. It just seemed much more like that Kanye was signaling a direction mm-hmm. and that direction was auto tune. Yeah. And his, his creative drive was around auto tune. All the things that that album became influential for was not just auto tune. But I think at the time, that's where I saw him headed. And I think on the Carter 3, there was just too much variety. And it's just so much more of a banger than 808s. So, you know, the Carter 3 to me, just like immediately I loved it. So let's talk about how 808s and Heartbreak defined 09 then. Because we talked about these two divergent roads in hip-hop. Like you've got one sign leaning really hard into like a auto-tune heavy pop direction. You've got this other side like 
bristling back in the other direction, like going more back to the original roots of the art form. But what 808s and Heartbreak did, unexpectedly, it had auto-tune, but it opened up what would become the next decade of rap music. Um, and not because of auto-tune, but because I think of the emotion and yeah. just the the elements of where Kanye was at that time with the death of his mother opening up just a a huge door for artists like Drake and Kid Cudi and people that were ready to do a little bit more personal, emotional, thoughtful, introspective, uh, sad <laughs> at times type of music. And that's really, in hindsight, what defines 2009. And it was mind. immediate. That's what's so yeah. remarkable because you, you can certainly apply those same learnings to a ch Childish Gambino, Chance the Rapper, Future. But the fact that Drake comes out with a mixtape in 2009 that feels so much like an extension of 808s and Heartbreaks is just remarkable to me. It's yeah. remarkable that Kanye's influence was that instant. Yeah, absolutely. And it, really, when you look at a lot of the big money-making albums in 09, that's another thing I want to talk about is that when you look back of like the critically acclaimed hip-hop albums in 2009, like the ones that you know were best reviewed, are the ones that are leaning into like the the uh, old school for the that's the wrong term, but <laughs> right. like leaning back in that other direction because you've got like Raekwon right. put out an album in 09 that was really well reviewed and it's still a great album. Brother Ali, uh, there's a lot of albums like that, but the big money makers in 09 were a lot of this new direction of hip hop yeah. with the exception of Jay-Z's The Blueprint 3 which oddly enough contained a lot of elements that were also a part of that new direction of hip hop as much as I think at the time he felt like he didn't want to be associated with that yeah Jay Cole's on that album Drake is on that album and famously had a verse cut because he yeah. was not signed with Rockefeller Records yeah um who else is on that oh Cuddy's on that album yeah most it's of the people that are going to sprout careers in 2009 are on the Blueprint 3. Everyone except maybe Nicki Minaj. Right. Yeah. You know, the biggest new artists were all on Blueprint 3. Yeah, that is fascinating. What? And, well, I guess we can talk a little bit about Blueprint 3. I mean, we I, now I don't even think about Death of Autotune when I think of Blueprint 3. Oh, I do. You do? Yeah. Okay. Um, I love that song. The message itself may be more complicated. Actually, I don't think it's complicated. I think it was perfect for 2009, but I just think that song's incredible. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was good, but it's not a song that now, 10 years later, that I go back and listen to very often. That's because you don't have title. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that is That's true. That's the big problem with Blueprint 3, yeah. is we don't play, pay for the service that it's on. How many free trials of title have you uh, cashed in on? Yeah, in the past so many. I got a lot um, of different email addresses. But no, the the songs I remember from, uh, or that I go back to most often from for Blueprint 3, where I feel like we're kind of the, the songs that you'll still hear now. Yeah. Um, but Blueprint 3, what I remember most about that is, I mean, the production of that album was just, incredible so and there were so many different artists who were taking the beats of blueprint three and putting out their mo their own mixtapes on it that's what i remember of like i had a lot of artists i love like indie artists that were uh you know putting out like mix mixtapes over the beats of blueprint three right. i mean that that album is is really good <laughs> in a lot of ways it was then and it still is but it is the album because it falls after uh well now Nicki minaj is playing on the podcast <laughs> uh because it is the album that falls after Kingdom Come, two mm -hmm. albums later, but yeah. because it's in that period where Jay-Z is kind of not at the top of the mountain, 
it is the one album that I think people love to say they hate when they talk about Jay Z albums because yeah. it's not in the uh, reasonable doubt to the black album run. It's a sure. lot harder to pick out some of those in between albums and be like, I don't really like that. Yeah. Um, but it's uneven and imperfect as so many Jay-Z albums were. Oh, for were. sure. Now I see, and we've, and we've done like a full podcast on like Jay-Z's career arc. For me, Blueprint 3 gave me hope after Kingdom Come that Jay-Z had another black album type moment in him you know because I, I think after kingdom come in 06 was it yeah it just felt like this is over whereas blueprint 3 there was a spark there that made me think like th- there there's there's more to come and there was yeah. um and uh, again it's uneven even from that point but um i think it was a a, <laughs> a a step in the right direction for him especially culturally he had his first like number one hit on blueprint 3, I know. right with uh empire state of mind and that's or, w- sorry uh empire state of mind and Empire State of Mind is probably is probably one of the, if not the most like played Jay Z songs now, like in, oh, in yeah. the history of his career. Definitely. You know that, that that the legacy. Looking ten ten years back, the legacy legacy of that song hasn't diminished at all. It just keeps getting bigger. And it's another thing is when you see like people from New York who love to hate on that song. I feel like that's another, like that's yeah. another thing that, that really like, I feel like everyone was dancing to it in 2009, but now people love to hate it. I still love Empire I mean, they State reference that song on an episode of 30 rock. I remember. Yeah. In a really hilarious. Way. And that's it really was... the measure of rap. Is it like, is it measured? Is it a reference on 30 rock? <laughs> Did Tina Fey say a line from a song <laughs> on 30 rock? Yeah. This was the last moment where you could make the argument that Jay-Z through a solo album had really captured rap like no other artist in terms of his influence and the scale of his popularity. Surely with, four, with 444, he gets sort of closer to that critically, but it's just not the same. Well, it's interesting that with Blueprint 3, where he's taking the point to where the genre and the cultural conversation is going, that he can still have such a huge impact yeah. in that moment. There's not a lot of people that can pull that sort of thing off because you run the risk of looking like a dinosaur right. and kind of being done at that point. And there are, I mean, there are some dinosaur moments on there when you think of Autotune, but how hilarious, you know, looking 10 years back, that Ape Shit, which was one of the biggest songs of uh, of last year, features Migos, uh, you know, with Autotune, you right. know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's fascinating. Certainly Jay-Z has evolved as well. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, one of the biggest artists of 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 my youth, and one of the reasons I love rap music was was not only Little Wayne, but all of Cash Money. Mm-hmm. Cash Money as yep. as an identity and as a label was so important to me when I was yeah. first listening to rap music, and it was very difficult for me to embrace this idea that they're going to rebrand and call themselves Young Money, mm-hmm. and there's all these new artists. And I'm yeah. just wondering how you felt at the time about Young Money. What was what was Young Kyle thinking about Young well, Money? Well, it's kind of like what I already talked about. I, I was kind of I, – I was starting to feel like a dinosaur a bit in 2009 <laughs> because of my, my hip-hop leanings. So it, it took me a while to come around. And like you, I was really into Cash Money 
when I was in high school. I mean, you, you would flip a CD to the back to make sure it had that gold or yes. platinum studded emblem yes. on the back. Like that, that mattered. That would impact the purchase of an album for me. You know, like I don't know if now I would buy a BG album, but you know, <laughs> in 1998, like hell yeah, it's got the cash money emblem on the back. I'm buying that shit. So no, young money, that moment, it took me a while to come around. I mean, Drake specifically was an artist. And I've talked about this before, but it, it, it took me years before I kind of came around on the Drake Interesting. conversation, which I mean, even now, I mean, I, I'll, I listen to Drake and I enjoy Drake. He's not one of my favorite artists. That's a whole complicated conversation. But, um, yeah, I, I would say in 09, I was definitely not ready to be a part of the transition that was happening there. I mean, I liked it and I really liked Drake out of the gate. I just didn't know if like Gutta Gutta was going to be, you know, an <laughs> album that I bought. <laughs> it wasn't. It turns yeah. out it did. And like, if you look back 10 years, really, that was that, that whole rollout in 2009 was rolling out the careers of Nicki Minaj and Drake. And the yeah. fact that they brought out two superstars simultaneously is incredible. Yeah, definitely. And that whole Rockefeller young money thing, you know, I mean, again, that was part of that larger conversation, right? right? It was a, it was, I was thinking about this recently. So hip hop has gone through a lot of different stages of evolution, just like every genre of music does. But in 09, it was having its first big in the limelight conversation as a genre, right? Where like decisions are going to be made about what comes next. Rock and roll went through this. I mean, you can look back on any genre over time. There's those big moments where people are having those conversations of like, this is good or this is bad. And I'm either going to move forward with this or I'm going to stay behind with what has already happened and what I believe is like real and organic about this music that I love. And in 2009, hip hop was one of, if not the biggest genre in the world for the first time ever and was having that moment where everybody kind of had to make a choice, right? And so everything about Oh Now, we talk about the auto-tune, not auto-tune, talk about Young Money and Rockefeller. There were all these conversations happening that just felt so important yeah. In the moment, in terms of what side you were on. Well, and it was super weird. For the first time, we had a president who loved rap music. Right. And grew up listening to rap music and had opinions on mm-hmm. Jay-Z tracks that were like B-sides. Yeah. And like that was – that elevated the genre. Granted, Jay-Z wasn't you know performing at like the convention, but the Black Eyed Peas were. Yeah. You know, but, and Jay-Z were doing benefit concerts for Obama. But Jay-Z was at the White House in 2009, yeah. and that mattered. You it know what I mean? Matter. That was that mattered if you're arguing that side of the conversation. Obama did the dirt off his shoulder thing. <laughs> right. That was huge. Um, so looking back at, at good music – and Kanye West, you know, he has Cuddy in 2009. And Cuddy is, I mean, I think for both of us, that was our best, that would have been our best new artist pick of 2009. Yep. Certainly looking in retrospect, it was our best new artist pick. Um, he has Cuddy, but it did seem like with Drake going with Lil Wayne, that is like Young Money really has the power. And in the next few years, it really seemed that way when Cuddy didn't kind of take off in the same way that Drake and Nicki Minaj did. Right. Yeah, it's really fascinating to to look back on it now. And Cuddy, of course, made his first appearance in that uh, 808s and Heartbreak track, Welcome to Heartbreak, which is one of my favorite songs uh, of all time. Definitely uh, uh, one of my favorite Kanye songs. And so I was all in on Kid Cuddy. But you look back at it now, and there were so many moments like that 
around this time where you could jump to snap decisions about who was going to like hold the most weight. Cause even by 2010, you've got Pusha T coming into the good music camp. And at that time it felt a little weird because it's like Pusha T might be past his point of relevancy. Whereas now we know he put out his best album last year in 2018. So it's one of those things where I feel like a lot of the in the moment judgments I made and a lot of people made may not have been, the way it necessarily played out on a larger scale. Now, Drake obviously is the one exception to the rule. I mean, that he, he has stood the test of time and has been, been huge for that whole camp. Yeah. I think Drake had the career that I would have guessed that he was going to have in 2009. I thought he was going to be one of the biggest artists in hip hop for a long time. Jay-Z famously has that line in blueprint three where he's like, it's Drake's game. Now let's see how he runs with it. And man, it really panned out that way. Let's talk about forever. Um, I feel like that was one of the biggest songs of Oh nine. When you think about all the people on it and that it's Drake, this new guy that's kind of holding the track down the guy in the Sprite commercial, you right. know what I mean? Like, and that whole video is juxtaposing like LeBron James as a high school player. Like it, it literally is Drake stepping up to bat and like calling in his own shot, which, you know, people do that all the time in hip hop. But at this particular moment, it felt like, wow, it like warranted. if this happens, like this is huge. And he definitely, it definitely happened for him. Yeah, that song's remarkable too because it has Eminem in it. Mm-hmm. Eminem has the best verse on that song, arguably the best best verse of the entire year. Then he releases an album that doesn't flop, but it's right. not the comeback that we expect from Eminem, and that comeback wouldn't happen until the the next year. Yep, yeah, that we haven't even brought up Eminem, you know. Uh, relapse felt like it was going to be a big moment in 2009 and it really was not (laughs) at all and you know eminem's in the anti-auto-tune camp like he's he's on that that other side of the conversation and his recovery didn't or i'm sorry relapse didn't work recovery the following year definitely did and brought i mean recovery was his blueprint three that i felt like kind of propelled with the next few years of eminem's career could turn into but he kind of felt like in 2009 that he is what 50 Cent was in 2007. Exactly. Like, it's like he can't like, hit the fastball over. anymore. This yeah. guy's going to have to figure out something else. Yeah, so with the exception of that forever verse, it really was kind of a this is over type of year for him. Um, speaking of verses, so in your opinion, is that Eminem verse on forever the best verse of 2009? Yeah. Okay. I I can hear the argument for it. <laughs> We've talked about this. You disagree with me vehemently about it. Uh-oh. The best verse of 2009 is Kanye's verse on Run This Town. I'm just going to fold my arms across my chest <laughs> and just let you talk. Please. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I still love it. I know it's it's like peak Kanye for me uh, at that moment. And it's a verse, I think, in light of 808s and Heartbreak and everything that we knew about what Kanye was going through with his mother passing away, that verse on Run This Town felt like there was a chance that we could have Kanye again that there was hope after kind of like everything that he'd gone through and was going through in the moment like you know the the RAV4 line the uh, the beastie off the Riesling line there was a lot of stuff there that felt like oh yeah like Kanye is going to be able to have fun again we're going to be able to enjoy this and of course there there was lots more to come but I don't know I I, I know you don't like Run This Town <laughs> Run This Town was the best hip-hop song of 2009 well saying. tell me a little bit about the other tracks that you thought were were top tracks in 2009 mm. Good question. So 
Forever was definitely up there for me. I put one of the things, one of the things I put on the list there was All In. Uh, it was a oh, track yeah. by, uh, Eli and Grouch. I thought that was huge. Um, also, um, POS is an artist that kind of came around in 2009. He was a underground hip hop, uh, artist that had kind of a big moment. Uh, there were several tracks on, on his, uh, 2009 album that I thought were great, but it, it's so hard for me to pin down like particular songs in yeah. nine because it was so much around like 2009 felt like, I don't know. It was, they're just outside of like the radio hits that Jay-Z had. There wasn't like a lot of like really breakout huge right. tracks. Well, you this. had day and night on here. Day and you, night you listed, Kid Cudi, yeah. I, I put pursuit of happiness, like the Kitty Cuddy tapped into something. Cause I was 21, 22 in 2009. Kid Cuddy tapped into something about being that age and the parties and just the the chill atmosphere that that was in in so in so many ways of that class it just hadn't been tapped into and yeah. man he was just so distinct had such clear voice right out of the gate that I'm shocked when I look 10 years back at Kid Cudi's album of his career that his best album was his debut album. Yeah, that's I was going to bring that up. So Day and Night that or that first uh Man on the Moon album comes out in 09. It feels like Cudi's moment in a lot of ways it was. I mean, everybody was listening to that, Everybody right? was. And so in 09 you were expecting if if you if I'd asked you in 09 like Whose next five years are going to be bigger, Drake or Kid Cudi? What would you have said? I would have said Drake just because I felt like Drake had a more mainstream sound. I just felt like Kid Cudi would have had this consistent, long career of like pretty prolific output closer to someone like Future's career. Okay. And uh, But I just don't think that he had the same sort of mass appeal that Drake had, particularly because he wasn't on the Disney Channel show before he started yeah. making music, right? I mean, 2009 me really wanted Kid Cudi to be that next artist. Like, I think I probably would have admitted that I thought it was going to be Drake, but I, I was rooting for Kid Cudi hard. And, uh, this, this gets us a little bit closer to that title belt conversation where we'll talk about like who, who actually took the title belt. But I, I just feel like we, we are in hindsight, we, it's easy to forget how big of a moment Kid Cudi had in 2009. I I just feel like it was one of those things and maybe it's, it's framed kind of by my own little world that I was in at the time. But man, Man on the Moon was huge. I mean, people, even people now, like I know friends of mine who have that album, like the the vinyl framed and on their wall. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that. There's something about that album that is um, just has so much more fervor and passion behind it than than Drake's output at the time, the Drake's mixtape. And I, I don't know what it is because he, they're yeah. so they're both so clearly influenced by what Kanye was doing in 808s and yeah. Heartbreaks. But for some reason, Cuddy just seemed more special. So that's and that's my thing with all of this is that 2009 Drake, you could see it coming. You could see the building blocks in place of what could potentially happen. 2009 Kid Cuddy was there. Yeah, he had that moment in 2009. It wasn't like a oh, I wonder what this might turn into. It was like oh shit. <laughs> He's here. It's just weird to think that was his moment, right? Not to disparage his career since, and I know if he's he's has had a lot, you know, personal troubles that have, that have kept him from being the prolific artist that maybe we we assumed he would be. Yeah. 
but it just he was never closer to the title belt than he was in 2009. And that happens in hip hop. Like we can look back through the years and that we always have that conversation. There are moments like that where maybe it's not going to be the most prolific guy. And the hardest thing about having these conversations, especially when you're looking back 10 years, is that we want to project everything we know now back on to 2009 right. to make a decision about that. But what you really have to do is get back to 2009 in that exact moment without a knowledge of what's to come and be able to make that decision, which is a little bit more it's a more difficult conversation, but it's definitely, a, I think, a, an interesting conversation. Yeah. Spe- speaking of Drake, I love the song Money to Blow. That was on my t- one of my top five <laughs> songs. And I just loved – I was really into to Moneyball in 2009. And I was like, well, if Drake can sing and he can rap, this guy is so versatile. This is like a great on-bass guy. You know, Drake <laughs> just gets on bass, you right. know? He's not the best singer, but he has that hook in Money to Blow, and it's fantastic. Birdman can put him anywhere he wants. Drake is the Ben Zobrist of, yes, uh, of exactly. <laughs> I also wanted to mention Lemonade because Gucci Mane and it breaks out in 2009. He is one of those best new artists that we just don't really think about that much in 2009. At least I don't think about as much in 2009. But he had – I mean that, that guy came up in rap music in a very traditional route. You know, put out mixtapes, sort of gained a following, got signed to a label, and he was putting out a ton of music. He has been, you know, speaking as prolific artists, he's been one of the most prolific artists in the last 10 years. I love Lemonade. I love that yeah. song. It just makes me happy. Like, listening to Gucci Mane just always makes me happy. And it's wild to think we've had him for 10 years. You know, granted, off and on, with some prison yeah. stints in between. Sure. But we've had him for 10 years. And, like, what a joyful rapper he's been throughout throughout the last 10 yeah. years. Gucci Mane is a... Is a rapper's rapper, yes. right? Like you have to listen to to hip hop to get Gucci Mane. And so in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, like people that listen to hip hop, like you can have that conversation. He can never be in that title belt conversation in my mind, just because there's not enough like grander cultural revel, uh, in the moment to be able to get him there. But like if you're just talking like straight up hip hop, like for sure, like Gucci Mane has he has a year in two thousand nine, right? Definitely. Yeah, and I just I love um, that that Southern rap at the time d- was in this kind of in between period where like you know Georgia had Ti, uh, but Outkast really wasn't producing as, in, anymore. Killer Mike was just starting to you know make his comeback, and it was before Future Amigos and just like the the Atlanta dominant rap that we have at the time. Yeah. So to have someone like Gucci Mane come out in 2009, that was kind of a cool. Cool moment. Yeah. We just don't think about it as much. We definitely don't. One of the things that I feel like we do think about is, and we talked about this briefly before we started, but if you were to ask your mom what the biggest moment in hip hop in 2009 was, right? There, there is one thing that happened in 2009 we have not discussed, and it seems silly to talk about, but the point is, is that moment literally opened the door for everything that was going to happen over the course of the next one to two years in hip hop music. And that is Kanye at the VMAs interrupting Taylor Swift's speech. Like I, I know this gets away from like what our traditional conversations about hip hop title belt are. Cause it doesn't really matter, but it does next year. when We talk about the 2010 title belt because Kanye stealing the mic from Taylor Swift at the VMAs 
2009 was the biggest news story that hip hop had in 2009. Absolutely. Without a question. And it's very similar. It's kind of funny to think when we had our title belt conversation for 2018, we talked about how oddly the biggest moment in hip hop was Kanye going to the White House and how Mm. uncomfortable it is to think about. It's so uncomfortable to think about the fact that in this very interesting year in rap that this random weird moment at the VMAs uh, dominated. But you're right. That defined hip-hop for so many people who weren't listening to the genre at the time. Absolutely. In a lot of really uncomfortable uh, and complicated ways, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, that can be its own conversation. But, you know, and I, I know we've had, you and I through the years have had so many conversations about that moment of how absurd it was that that was actually <laughs> something that people were talking about. Like, the... the <laughs> Kanye like gently taking the mic away from a, a white woman on stage and Howard and Stern literally had his ass out at the VMAs <laughs> once and the idea that he 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 grabbed someone's microphone to uh to compliment the rightful winner of that category is right. so funny. It is it is absurd. The Jay Leno interview happens in 2009. I just it's Jay so... Leno like a an angry father forced Kanye to apologize to his dead mother. <laughs> <laughs> on television for saying that Beyonce should have won a video music oh award. Oh my god. 2009 was absurd. Was I can't incredible. I can't believe that totally we're incredible. talking about 2009. But here's why that moment matters, right? Is because that moment leads to Kanye exiling himself and eventually beginning to craft uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy in, in private in Hawaii with bringing in all these different artists and that I mean, there's a very clear correlation between that moment and what came next for Kanye and in general, what came next for hip hop. So that I I think that's why it's worth at least bringing up and discussing, because, again, even in a year where Kanye doesn't release an album, he impacts hip hop in so many ways in 2009, which is kind of uh, fascinating. I totally agree. Uh, David Drake had a a great article um, in 2014 just saying 2009 was the best year ever for rap mixtapes. If you think about J. Cole, Mm -hmm. Nicki Minaj, Drake, there were so many artists that were starting to break through for mixtapes. And as we mentioned in 2008, um, Lil Wayne and the Carter Three, that album was so powered by his mixtapes and sort of that groundswell of support that he had had. Um, and I just feel like it's kind of cool to, to mention just just the fact that mixtapes were just were still such a remarkable part of 2009. And when we look when I look back ten years, I'm just like, oh yeah, that's like that's what SoundCloud rap has become. Right. Well, isn't it interesting that in 2009 the mixtape discussion is so intertwined with the artists who aren't necessarily embodying that old school hip hop mentality, right? Because mixtapes are very uh, organic part of hip hop in terms of how people like came to fruition in terms of just their notoriety or having an opportunity to have a verse or have a moment on a mixtape mixtapes in 2009 is a different conversation than like mixtapes in like 92 or something. Right. right? Um, but mixtapes in 2009 was really uh, a way that these, this new wave of artists were able to, kind of discreetly interject themselves into kind of the cultural moment that was happening in hip hop. And I just think when you, when you talk about organic aspects of hip hop, you have to mention the most important mixtape of 2009, which was Macklemore's. <laughs> Is that for real? That's for real. Oh, wow. And just, 
if we only knew in 2009 <laughs> what the coming years were going to Man. be like. Boy, I can't wait till we get to do the uh, podcast on the heist in, in 2022. I feel like <laughs> at that time we might be able to get Macklemore on the podcast. I don't know. It's possible. It's possible. We're getting closer by the day. It's possible. Why don't we dislike that guy? You Why know? don't we dislike him? I don't know. Do you think g Easy was sent... To make us apologize for Macklemore <laughs> and how we treated him. It's possible. Like, you know, Macklemore really wanted to do the... Like, he was on the right side of history. Look, in so I'll, many I'll ways. In so many ways he wasn't. But. Yeah. I'll say this. Last summer, I was at a concert in which Macklemore was also there performing. I was not there to see him. He spent an impossible amount of time of his set throwing hot dogs into the crowd. Not performing. But getting people to like get crazy for him to throw a hot dog into the crowd—that's <laughs> a real thing. So I, that that's really all that we need to say about Macklemore. No disrespect to Macklemore, Jeezy. Disrespect there, to Macklemore. There's hey, there's only love there. So I assume maybe maybe Macklemore isn't your winner for the hip hop title belt 2009. He's not. It's it's tough, but I gotta cross him off the list. All right, so. well then tell me who who are you picking for 2009? Are you ready? Are you yeah. ready to do this? I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready. Okay. So and let us preface this. We've talked about how we've done multiple hip hop title about podcasts for my podcast. It's right. all dead. We've agreed every single year, right? I have, think so. We have. We, have. we, we never disagree. That's we right. We never had a disagreement until now. I think my 2009 hip hop title belt goes to Kid Cudi. Wow. Yep. Wow. I did Bold it. move. And it's, it's just like what I'm saying. I feel like if we try to talk about it now with everything that's happened in the past 10 years, it's easy to disagree with. But if you're able to take yourself back to 2009 in that moment, I feel like you can have a real argument about Kid Cudi taking that title belt. Yeah. I mean, he made a song it's with MGMT. And it's weird to think about, about them 10 years later. Mm-hmm. I know this is a conversation about hip hop, but those two artists seem like they may define the millennials as a generation at the time. Exactly. And what a there hadn't been anything like that since Jay-Z and Linkin Park. And mm-hmm. I know both of those are kind of weird to think back on. Yeah. But both of those were weird crossover moments for hip hop that in some ways elevated the genre in a way that wasn't just like critically dismissed. Dude, I I agree a hundred percent, and in so many ways, we haven't talked about a lot about Lupe Fiasco in two thousand nine, and I think we both would agree that two thousand nine was kind of a swing and a miss for him of an artist that we had such high hopes for. Now, in terms of the way they make music, like Lupe Fiasco and Kid Cudi are very different artists, but at the moment in two thousand nine, I feel like Kid Cudi was subversively accomplishing what I always thought Lupe Fiasco might be able to do. And that, for me, is what makes that conversation so interesting because it really did matter. And because hip-hop is such a young people's game and music in general, like, Kid Cudi owned that conversation in 2009. And had Lasers come out in 2009, and had it been the the response to cool to the cool that we expected it might be, then we are thinking about Lupe Fiasco as the title belt holder. Yeah. And clearly, much like Kid Cudi, Lupe Fiasco had been brought along to be one of those, those heirs to the title belt. Exactly. I think that I feel like they're really similar conversations to have in terms of career arc because, you know, 2009 Lupe Fiasco was like, 
2012 Kid Cudi for yeah. us, right? You have to go back to Food and Liquor, The Cool, to really talk about Lupe Fiasco, which in the moment felt so huge, and it was only going to get bigger, but it didn't, right? I know. It was, the, it was those early moments that really defined it, but that doesn't take anything away from what those moments were. Who's your title belt in 09 go to? It's Jay-Z. Yeah. It's the, the Blueprint 3 was was this incredible reminder of everything that Jay-Z was. And I am such, as I've mentioned ad nauseum on other podcasts, I'm such a big fan of American Gangster, and I love that album. And I and I just remember at the time when it was just kind of a big meh for most people. Yeah. That I was like, oh, we'll never have the moment again where Jay-Z is dominating and he's on top. And it it just, it it's unfortunate the way it happened with Kingdom Come. And when you look at Magna Carta and you look even 444, as culturally relevant as it was, Jay-Z wasn't the title belt holder for that year. Yeah. And he's one of the, if, if not the most important artists of my entire life. And Blueprint 3 was the last time that he mattered more than anyone and he was bringing the next generation of artists along, but also working with producers that he had for so much of his career. I saw Jay-Z in 2010 on that tour. And man, Kyle, the, the live band and the energy that Jay-Z brought to those shows. And, and Kevin Durant was at the concert that I saw. Oh, which, wow. uh, <laughs> which, you know, Kevin Durant was going to Jay-Z concerts at the right. time, you know, like it, he was, he really was at the top of the mountain in terms of his, his influence. Um, so that, that to me, that, that the culmination of his entire career, not, uh, not ending with a, with a sad note on Kingdom Come yeah. was so important to me in 2009. So it's, I mean, it, it's obviously hard to argue Jay-Z, right? In this context. And, but here's the point where I would push back. At the height of his influence, I don't think that's right. Yeah, that's I, I, I really don't think, in terms of the way he was influencing culture at the time, influencing the direction of hip hop, 2009 was not the height of that. It was the last cry, the last rallying cry of the original influence that Jay Z had back in the late 90s and early 2000s. But it was not influential at the time. Kid Cudi was, and I, I think that that for me is what shifts. That conversation. I mean, I think because 2009 is so weird in terms of hip hop and because in my mind, it's not, you can say Jay-Z is the default winner just because of like, he had the big songs, he had the huge tour, all of this. But I don't know if the way we talk about title belt, if that really encapsulates what that means or what it's traditionally meant when we've had these conversations. Uh, you know, and, and I realize it's it's hard to you, it's hard to elevate Kid Cudi in '09 to the level of Jay Z. It's just impossible, right? But I think if we are talking about influence, if we are talking about what impacted hip hop in the moment and everything that was to follow, that's where I feel like Kid Cudi had the larger. Uh, he he has a corner of that conversation. That that makes a lot of sense when you talk about. Certainly, it wasn't the height of Jay Z's influence. Um, I just. Man, I love that moment for Jay Z. Yeah, super cool, I love it too. You know, all right, we disagreed. How does no. that feel? Man, it feels like we should have a fist fight. You know, <laughs> I don't know. Let's pause uh, quickly while we do that. <laughs> what else are we missing? We, we, you know, we haven't talked about Mace. He had his. We couldn't decide if it was second, third, fourth, almost comeback in yeah. 2009. Mace is one of my favorite rappers, and uh, anytime I get a chance to talk about Mace, I like to 
sneaking Mace in. Has has an incredible autobiography, from what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, you got to read it, man. <laughs> oh, what what a what a strange and interesting year. But I think the the reason I can pick Jay Z is because Kanye comes in 2010. Kanye's in 2007. Little Wayne's in 2008. The biggest artists just sat this out. And even right. looking in retrospect, Drake just didn't have that kind of pull. Yeah. Cuddy didn't have the career that makes you that makes me look back and feel like I can give him the title belt. And I understand now that you disagree with that. that, that well, let me – yeah, so maybe you just answered it. But I wanted to ask, like, if, if you say Jay-Z takes the title belt in 09 – who was closer to the title belt in 09, Drake or Kid Cudi? Drake. Okay. It was just bigger. Yeah. He was on the Disney Channel. You know? <laughs> I don't remember Cudi being on the Disney Channel. Yeah, that really and, – and nothing says hip-hop roots more than that. So Absolutely. I'm not going to be that guy. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kyle, as always, thank you for doing the podcast. And it feels like, you know, it's – this is the first time – uh, like King Solomon, we're gonna split the title belt and give two, uh, two halves to two different artists. But nevertheless, we've given the title belt we and did. we've looked back a decade to see what influences most. Thanks for being on. And that's all, folks. That's it. Let's go throw on some Flow Rider. <laughs> Macklemore. Thank you for listening to the Decade Rewind podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. You can always follow us at Decade Rewind on Twitter. Our music is Basic Implosion by Kevin McLeod. And as always, a thank you to my co-host, Kyle Hawk. You can find his other podcast, It's All Dead, at itsalldead.com or on iTunes. And uh, give itsalldead.com a read. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye. All right, so there you have it. That is uh, our uh, latest episode of Decade Rewind, heard right here on It's All Dead. Um, hope you enjoyed that podcast. If you like what you heard, uh, please subscribe to Decade Rewind as well. We think uh, if you're a fan of It's All Dead, um, there's a chance you'll enjoy this podcast as well. It's not all about music. Uh, we've done a lot of other episodes so far. We've celebrated the 10-year anniversary of the uh beginning of Parks and Recreation. Uh, we've talked about the inauguration of uh, the 44th President, Barack Obama. Uh, we also did some 2008 podcasts where we looked back on the Dark Knight, the 2008 Olympics, and a whole lot more. So uh, in general, hope you enjoyed it. Check out Decade Rewind if it feels like your thing. If not, that's cool too. Thanks for listening to It's All Dead. Uh, if you want to learn more, go to itsalldead.com. Thank you so much for listening and uh, being a part of this podcast. So glad to, to have you back, and we will be back soon with a new episode. Until then, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the It's All Dead podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Then visit us at itsalldead.com for the latest music news, reviews, and much more.